0: Welcome. I'm Kim Wilcox. I'm the Chancellor here at UC Riverside, and it's great to welcome you to our university and to our presidential lecture. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, the University of California has presidential scholars. Uh, There have been 41 in the history of the entire university. We have one tonight. Uh, There has never... Yes, (laughs) that's a applause line. This is our fifth... At UCR, and it's the first philosopher ever in the entire University of California to be named a presidential professor. So we're particularly proud of Professor Fisher. Uh, but it's my honor tonight to introduce to you the Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences here at the University, our Dean for the last three years, Milagros Peño.
1: Thank you, everyone, for for coming um, and enjoying with us a celebration of this incredible honor. And uh, it's my uh, uh, honor and privilege as dean of the college uh, to be able to introduce my colleague, Professor John Martin Fisher. Uh, He's a university professor and distinguished professor in the philosophy department at the University of California, Riverside. He received his BA in philosophy from Stanford University and his PhD from Cornell. Prior to coming to UCR, he was Associate Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. He also has taught at UCLA, University of Colorado Boulder, and Santa Clara University. Fisher served as Director of the University Honors Program at UCR for eight years and was Chair of the Department of Philosophy for five years. At UC Riverside, he has won the Center for Ideas and Society Distinguished Achievement Award the College of Humanities of Arts and Social Sciences Distinguished Research Award, the Graduate Division Dissertation Advising and Mentoring Award, and the Academic Senate Faculty Research Lectureship. He has held the University of California Presidential Chair, and he has served as President of the American Philosophical Association, Pacific Division. He's been awarded three fellowships by the National Endowment for the Humanities and four grants by the John Templeton Foundation. As you know, he was the project leader for the uh, Immortality Project, a $5.1 million um, uh, grant to us sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation and housed here at UC Riverside. (laughs) Fisher is the author or co-author of four books. He has four collections of his essays that have been published by Oxford University Press, and he's co-editor of Oxford University Press's Introduction to Philosophy, Classical and Contemporary Readings. He is currently completing Death, Immortality, and Life's Meaning. Please join me in welcoming University Professor John Fisher.
2: So, this seems to be working, the mic. So I want to first thank Dean uh, Milagros-Pena and Chancellor Kim Wilcox for organizing this. It's very kind of you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. I'd especially just want to say a few words. Thank you to my department, the philosophy department here at UCR. Uh, You've been incredibly supportive and generous giving me the space and the of the um, collegiality uh, to do my writing and my research and stimulating me. Thank you to my colleagues who, um, within philosophy here and also throughout the profession, I'd like to thank the campus uh, for being incredibly supportive. This has been, I've been here for 30 years and uh, when I got here the, there were 5,400 students. Um, I don't think I have anything to do with the fact that we now have 25,000 It's much harder to park, (laughs) and this building didn't exist at all, Uh, most of those buildings didn't exist, but it's been an exciting time to be part of the growth of the campus. I really appreciate the support the campus gave me throughout my career and also in getting the grant and administering the grant. And I'd like to thank uh, the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences. I could go on, but I I want to get in a certain amount in my lecture, and I want to leave a lot of time for questions and answers, at least for questions and attempted answers. (laughs) I I also see someone who worked with me in the University Honors Program, and I I forgot to thank the staff who we worked together. And uh, I was eight years in the University Honors Program, and I really appreciate all the team we had. Okay. Um, Also, I tend to be undisciplined if I go off script. You might be reminded of someone. (laughs) Um, In any case, I'm I'm going to stay on script uh, as much as I can, so I apologize that I'll be reading, but that way I'll get in the material and then we'll have time for Q&A. Human beings are deeply afraid of death, and we yearn for immortality, um, even if we have some ambivalence toward it. Religion offers the prospect of immortality. Near-death experiences are significant for many reasons, but perhaps the main reason is that they seem to point to the possibility of an afterlife, and thus a kind of immortality. Indeed, most, although not all, near-death experiences suggest a very attractive immortality. Given that, I'm going to use NDE as shorthand for near-death experiences. Given that NDEs have been reported throughout history and across cultures, and because they appear to be a portal to a beautiful immortality, they are of tremendous interest. They've been of tremendous interest throughout history and currently, as you know. They're much in the news. NDEs take place in near-death contexts. Situations in which an individual's life is in jeopardy or she simply believes that this is so. But not all people in near-death contexts have NDEs. Roughly 10% of those in near-death contexts report having NDEs. Um, And it's, it's hard exactly to quantify. I've seen 3%, 5%, 12%, I think it's roughly 10%. The Dutch cardiologist and researcher on NDEs Tim Van Lommel describes them as follows. A range of impressions during a special state of consciousness, including a number of special elements, such as an out-of-body experience, an OBE, um, pleasant feelings, seeing a tunnel, a light, deceased relatives or a life review, or a conscious return to the body. So these are elements that are typically, though not invariably, found in NDEs. I'll define an NDE as taking place in a near-death context and having a sufficient number of the characteristics identified by Van Lommel, Okay? An out-of-body experience, a life review, a dark tunnel traveling toward a life, being guided by deceased loved ones or benevolent religious figures. And interestingly, of course, across cultures, those figures are different, Um, Okay. About 90% of NDEs are described as positive experiences, and those who have had NDEs have significant change in their behavior. We can talk about the negative ones too, but I'll be focusing mainly on the positive ones. Uh, But the negative ones are in some ways more interesting. Um, (laughs) Pim Van Lommel has studied people who have had NDEs in the context of cardiac arrest, and he has observed that the NDEs have had significant transformational effects. These individuals have less death anxiety and are more spiritual. They are more pro-social, appreciating relationships more, and spending more time with family, friends, and relatives. They are also more compassionate and attuned to morality and justice. The transformations are often profound. NDEs are amazing, and not just because of their capacity to transform. People who are in cardiac arrest or under anesthesia or in comas, report having had rich experiences during these times, times at which their brains were apparently offline. Sometimes they report events that cannot be independently corroborated, but sometimes they report events, of facts, or, events or facts that can and indeed are corroborated. For example, some report that they are, they've heard conversations among their surgeons conversations that took place when the individuals were under anesthesia. The physicians confirmed that these conversations did in fact take place. Many have reported details of what happened during times at which they were not conscious, or apparently at least not conscious. They were under anesthesia or in a coma and so forth. The fact that these NDEs can be checked against the facts and that NDEs have very similar patterns of content at least suggests that even the NDEs that cannot be independently corroborated must be taken seriously, uh, at least taken very seriously. Many of these sorts of NDEs describe communication with deceased relatives and confrontation with a heavenly or otherworldly realm. So one of these is the famous... Uh, NDE written up by the neurosurgeon, Abin Alexander. Many of you have heard of this book and his work, uh, in which he found himself in, quote, a beautiful, incredible dream world, except it wasn't a dream, end quote. Uh, He describes himself flying along with, quote, a beautiful girl with high cheekbones and deep blue eyes. Um, (laughs) Sometime after his NDE, Alexander recognized this girl as his deceased sister whom he had never met. So this is in his famous book, Proof, uh, Proof of Heaven. And he's written a sequel, Map of Heaven. Uh, this is in Proof of Heaven, which sold more than 3 million copies in this country. We were riding along together on an intricately patterned surface, alive with indescribable and vivid colors, the wing of a butterfly. In fact, millions of butterflies were all around us, vast fluttering waves of them, dipping down into the greenery and coming back up around us again. Without using any words, she spoke to me. The message had three parts. You are loved and cherished. You have nothing to fear. There is nothing you can do wrong. Alexander holds that this rich set of experiences occurred while he was in a coma, and his brain was not capable of having experiences. He was a neurosurgeon, and so presumably kind of knows about these things. He writes. But while I was in a coma, my brain hadn't been working improperly. It hadn't been working at all. The part of my brain that years of medical school had taught taught me was responsible for creating the world I lived and moved around in, and for taking the raw data that came in through my senses and fashioning it into a meaningful universe, that part of my brain was down and out. And yet, despite all of this, I had been alive and aware, truly aware, in a universe characterized above all by love, consciousness, and reality. There was, for me, simply no arguing the fact. I knew it so completely that I ached. What I had experienced was more real than the house I sat in, more real than the logs burning in the fireplace. Okay, so he has actually a chapter called Ultra Real. He considers these experiences ultra real. Um, I should just mention that he had... um, About of meningitis, bacterial meningitis, and so he was suddenly very, very ill, and people didn't know exactly what it was. And then he was in a coma for five, six days, I think. Okay, now there's another one that you might have heard about: Uh, Colton Burpo's uh, NDE is described in the book co-written by his father, Todd Burpo, "Heaven Is for Real." This book has also sold millions of copies, and it was made into a motion picture that was widely distributed and viewed by millions. Colton became ill a few months shy of his fourth birthday. He was diagnosed with a burst appendix and underwent two surgeries. After he recovered, miraculously, Colton began recollecting and reporting experiences he had while undergoing the first surgery and under anesthesia. He had visited heaven and personally met Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. He had met various deceased relatives, one of whom was a sister who had never been born due to a miscarriage. He saw angels and John the Baptist, and he even saw his parents in the hospital at the time of the surgery, his father and mother in different rooms praying. They were, in fact, in different rooms praying. These are extraordinarily, extraordinary and awe-inspiring experiences. Of course, the contents of these NDEs cannot be independently verified. These, Abin Alexander's and Kopenberg to There are others that can be. Um, well, I'll just uh, give you one quickly of the ones that can be independently corroborated. And there are thousands of stories of these or reports, probably, I don't know, hundreds of thousands. The question always is, first of all, whether there are accurate, and secondly, whether they only could, be, could have been got, or the information could only have been acquired while the individual's brain was offline. But there are many, many reports, and it's sometimes difficult to explain them in a naturalistic way. Consider, for example, the famous story of Pam Reynolds. She underwent surgery for a brain aneurysm. She was under anesthesia, blood was drained from her brain, and her body temperature was reduced to 60 degrees. The EEG, electroencephalograph registered no brain activity sufficient for consciousness. And yet, Pam reported specific conversations of the medical team as she was being prepped for surgery. For example, she reported that the medical team discussed the problems posed by her small arteries. This conversation actually did take place. She also reported having an incredible experience. After witnessing... Um, medical personnel prepping her body, she left the operating room for someplace else, bathed in a bright light, and encountered deceased relatives who communicated to her without words. Okay, so there are many reports, um, and these reports kind of are studied carefully, and often it's not obvious that they're insincere or that there are naturalistic ways of explaining how the individuals acquired the information. And this has caught people's eyes and fascinated them. And because of our interest in what happens after we die, our fear of death, um, these become even more intriguing and fascinating. Now, I want to just define supernaturalism for our purposes. Supernaturalism about NDEs has two components. First, the claim that our minds are not just our brains and can exist after our brains and bodies stop functioning. And secondly, the claim that we come into contact with non physical, typically heavenly realms in NDEs. The supernaturalist thus claims that our non material minds, our souls, perceive or grasp features of a realm that is separate from our physical world. The first claim is sometimes called dualism about the relationship between the mind and body. It is plausible that the second claim, that we are in contact with a heavenly realm in NDEs, requires the first, that our minds are non-physical. The two views typically come as a package. The dominant view in the popular literature is supernaturalism, definitely the dominant view. NDEs provide, quote, a proof of heaven, and they show, quote, that heaven is for real. This is also an influential view in the more academic discussions of NDEs. There aren't a lot of academic discussions, but there is a literature. And maybe it's because people who are fascinated by NDEs tend already to believe in the supernatural interpretation of them. But even in the academic discussions, supernaturalism is probably the dominant view. Okay. The experiences are remarkable in their universality, and they at least appear to be a portal to an afterlife in another realm, usually a deeply peaceful, heavenly realm. But do we have to interpret them in this way? This is the main thing I'll be addressing. Can we understand the profound significance of NDEs without conceptualizing them as proving that heaven is for real? I pause to emphasize, I am only attempting to show here how a natural understanding of NDEs, a naturalistic, not a supernaturalistic uh, understanding of them, is possible. I will not here argue that it's necessary or even the best conceptualization of the phenomena. I aim to show that supernaturalism is not the only way to understand them and fully to respect the reports by those who have had these experiences. So I'm not arguing that NDEs don't point to an afterlife um, supernaturally construed. But I am arguing that that's not the only way to understand them, and that there's a really attractive naturalistic way of doing so. Um, So if you combine that with if you are predisposed to a scientific worldview, this way of understanding the stories or the meaning of NDEs might be attractive to you. Okay. Consider the difference between explanation and storytelling. These are two deep-seated aspects of our human nature, distinct ways in which we seek to come to grips with the world and ourselves in it. Storytelling is how we sort through the significance of what happens to us. The stories we tell help us to come to terms with our lives and also our deaths. They help us to sort out this experience we call living And they do so by placing events into emotionally recognizable patterns. We feel the pull of narratives because they take us, both in body and in mind, through recognizable emotional landscapes. We feel the tension of drama, the crushing pain of tragedy, the comic release. This is the distinctive way in which stories make sense to us. They give us a kind of emotional understanding. This is what makes something a story and not a mere description of a sequence of events. So I want to use story in this specific sense that it tends to elicit an emotional reaction. But we don't just tell stories. We use the tools of science to discover what is out there and in here and how it all fits together. We observe, hypothesize, and test. We refine our vocabulary for describing what we find, and we constantly revise our explanations for why things are the way they are. In doing so, we are searching for the truth. Unlike our drive to find meaning, our drive to explain is not satisfied by fictional representations. A good explanation grasps the world just as a good story touches the heart. These two enterprises, storytelling and explanation, are uniquely and essentially human. When it comes to making sense of the world and ourselves, human nature is multifaceted. We want to understand the way things work. And we want to grasp the meaning of it all. These two pursuits are not necessarily intention. Sometimes they can work together. Um, OK, I think I'll skip a little. I want to make sure I have enough time for lots of questions. It is important to see that these two kinds of understanding, explanation and storytelling, are entirely compatible. That is, the same phenomenon can be understood in either or both ways, although, of course, not simultaneously. The kind of understanding we seek will be context-relative and purpose-driven. For certain purposes, we want an explanation, and for others, we want a compelling story. Thus, even if a near-death experience is an entirely physical experience with a physical etiology, we can achieve an affective grasp of them by attending to their story. Stories allow the world to become meaningful to us as creatures with feelings. They afford us a sentimental, and often very deep, grasp of what's around us. And they do this by placing sequence of events into patterns that grift our affective sensibilities. We feel the rise and fall of the narrative as it unfolds. Think of the first time you read Romeo and Juliet. Recall your anxious excitement as as the young lovers see each other for the first time, feverish expectation at their courtship, crushing heartache at their deaths. The meaning provided by a narrative grasp of things does not depend on an assumption that the events being placed in a narrative frame are real in the sense that they really occurred in our concrete world. Fiction can be meaningful in this way, even fiction understood as such. We emotionally connect with made-up characters and their lives. And we do so knowing full well that they are figments of someone's imagination and projections in our own imaginations. The key to grasping the meaning provided by a narrative is, at least in part, the form the events presented in that story take. The connection between those events and an independent reality are beside the narrative point. Okay. The form of a good narrative maps onto our emotional templates. The moment Juliet stabs herself with a dagger is as inevitable as the moment Romeo drinks the poison. It just had to be that way. And yet we feel a certain kind of release. We achieve a sense of closure when the action of the play sweeps across the inevitable shores of the star-crossed lovers' deaths. We know where we are going. We cringe at the thought of the cruel fate that awaits our gaze, and yet we can't help but feel relieved when we get there. The peace between their families is an afterthought. It seems inevitable as well, but no more than an elixir to dull the pain in our hearts. And yet that pain is the point. It ties everything together. The story of Romeo and Juliet, the story of stymied... Love is meaningful precisely because it ends in sorrow and pain. It makes sense because we feel the predictable, foreseeable twists and turns of the plot as it unfolds, though we don't foresee them in detail. We ride the highs of the balcony and suffer the lows of the crypt because that is what it takes to achieve closure. Otherwise, none of this crazy, mixed-up, dramatic world makes sense. Now, everybody knows a Romeo and Juliet, or perhaps a Romeo and Julio, or a Juliet and Julia, but presumably none of these friends really climbs on balconies. None of them really climbs on balconies and so forth. The world often gets in the way of their love, all right, but it does not end in deadly confusion for them, not always. They mourn and move on as people do, or at least they try to do. We console them and help them along their way, and yet we grasp the significance of what they are going through because we are familiar with the tale. It begins with a glimpse that gets the blood pumping and ends with heartache. The pattern is familiar. This story, like others, meshes with our emotional sensibilities. The stories elicit or activate an emotional template in us. Okay, Stories render events emotionally meaningful, thereby allowing us to comprehend them and come to grips with them in a distinctive way. A story can be of high hopes dashed, of hard work rewarded, of the comeuppance that is one's due, of coming home, of of feeling precisely because of the way you attempt to succeed. That's one of my favorite stories, (laughs) Um, and so on. Hollywood loves stories of improbably overcoming huge obstacles on the path to living happily ever ever after. Hollywood loves them because we love them. What unites the various forms stories can take is that they allow us to fit sequences of events into familiar emotional patterns. The important feature of a story is not how it describes reality, but how it makes us feel. Explanations allow us to wrap our minds around things. Stories afford a glimpse into the meaning of events by allowing us to wrap our hearts around them. Okay. So we can understand, now I want to get to NDE specifically. We can understand the meaning of an NDE in part by interpreting the story it tells. NDEers are profoundly moved by the NDE's story. This story includes a heavenly realm and perfect being, typically. It seems that the story of the NDEs is essentially supernatural. But can we interpret the story of NDEs in a different way? That is, can we understand the story without requiring it to involve intended reference to certain metaphysically real elements, elements that are supernatural? I want to show how NDEs can be meaningful and transformative in part due due to the story they tell, where this is all compatible with a rejection of supernaturalism. Okay, I was worried that might be mine. (laughs) The distinctive meaning and potency of NDEs need not come from a supernaturalist story. The paradigm story of NDEs can be told in a naturalistic way. Put in slightly different words, Even if the story involves supernatural entities at the superficial level, we don't have to take this as an indispensable part of the story. Perhaps the apparent or surface story in an NDE is just a vehicle for expressing a deeper meaning. Okay, I suggest that the story at the core of NDEs is a voyage from a known or familiar place to a relatively unknown or unfamiliar situation or status guided by a benevolent parental or authority figure or figures. Okay? It's a voyage from the known and familiar, perhaps comfortable, to the unknown, guided by a benevolent parental or authority figure. This narrative is capable of resonating deeply with human beings. Stories depicting voyages go back at least as far as Homer's Iliad and Odyssey in Western literature. The narrative of a voyage or journey, sometimes a journey of self-discovery, is a staple of literature. Healthy human development involves making a transition, taking a voyage in adolescence from the familiar territory of the family to the broader and less familiar world of other people and relationships. A psychologically healthy individual learns how to differentiate herself from her parents' and to live independently of the family. Ideally, this transition is supervised and guided by a knowledgeable and benevolent authority figure, typically a parent. But it doesn't have to be a parent. It can be uh, by a, a, a benevolent authority figure, I mean either a parent or someone with more experience and to which one defers in a particular context and who has one's best interests at heart. Typically, I'd say the normative role of a parent, or the role of a parent when things are going well, is a good paradigm. It doesn't have to literally be a parent. The story told by an NDE taps into an ancient genre of the voyage, but it also recapitulates or e- echoes our development from dependence on the family to integration into the wider world, as guided by our parents, our parent figures. We can understand some of the elements of the NDE by reference to the way in which we relate to the parental guide. Our guides both teach and model greater pro-social and moral behavior, when things are going well, that is. In an NDE, we are reminded of the sacrifices and love of our parents, or those who have raised us benevolently, and we are filled with awe. Further, their example of love and sacrifice is salient and thus we want to follow the lessons they sought to teach us as we uh, made the journey from the family to the wider world. Awe and wonder come from a recognition of the love and sacrifice of our parents, and increased prosociality and moral concern comes from a desire to learn from their teaching and to follow their example. The story of NDEs, on my interpretation, does not presuppose supernaturalism or a belief in supernaturalism. At a deeper level, I'm sorry, I mean at the deep level, it doesn't require supernaturalism. In the NDEs reported by Aben Alexander and Colton Burpo, purported details of the heavenly realms and beings are revealed. But in many, perhaps most, NDEs, the subject experiences traveling toward a barrier that guards some sort of destination. Maybe a... Um, a wall or um, a gated area, or you're, on a, you're, you're going toward a river and you're traveling across the river to the other side. It's usually a voyage to some place. Um, and before the individual actually negotiates the barrier, she awakens, typically with regret that she has awakened and a desire to return and experience the completion of the voyage. This is like waking up from a wonderful dream. You wish it could go on longer. If heaven is for real, it is a gated community, <laughs> at least in many NDEs. The point is that the importance of NDEs is not that they depict a supernatural destination, at least in my view. Rather, their deeper meaning is that they tell the story of a recognizable and resonant kind of human journey. OK how does the story of a voyage to the unknown guided by benevolent authorities or parental figures help to explain the diminished death anxiety and indeed serenity in the contemplation of death characteristic of those who have had NDEs? So that's important because on the supernatural interpretation, it seems like we're headed toward heaven and that gives us considerably less death anxiety. How does a supernaturalistic interpretation um, comport with that? Perhaps we feel that a benevolent authority would not lead us into a dark or unpleasant status. In a sense, our lives are really a set of journeys from the known and comfortable to the unknown and challenging. Of course, these voyages are not the same for all people, but there are some important similarities. We travel from the family to the wider world of relationships and active engagement with the challenges of the broader world, guided by our parents. Perhaps we go from the safety and comfort of our family to college or university life. Here we seek friends and perhaps clubs and associations to take the place of our families. They then help to usher us from the by now familiar and relatively comfortable world of college to the new and more challenging environment of graduate school or the wider world of employment. Of course, our parents are still there, perhaps in the background, helping us along our way. A graduating senior at an American university captures the essence of this transition. I saw this in an alumni magazine recently. This is what she says. She's graduating. Leaving a known place. Off to the world we go to discover more. So and she probably felt the same way when she left home for college. If things go well in our lives, we are guided by parents, authority figures, family, and friends. Perhaps the most challenging transition for us to get our minds around is the voyage from life to death. Our last voyage, unless there is reincarnation or an afterlife that allows for change and development. The stories of NDEs help to Um, assuage our anxieties about this daunting journey. Just as our parents ushered us into this world, they usher us out as well. And just as our parents take us on our first journey into independence from our family to the wider world, they guide us on our last one, from life to whatever lies ahead, even if it is nothingness. The mind is able to bring our parents or other benevolent parental figures back from the dead, as it were, to guide us along this last journey. Not only are we not alone in this journey, but we are accompanied by people who love us. Okay. The reported contents of NDEs, including supernatural realms and beings, can be understood then as metaphors, or at least as non-literal. These stories can have profound meaning for us, even if we do not take them to refer to really existing hem- heavenly realms and beings. Of course, we interpret many stories, including biblical stories, metaphorically and not strictly literally. Can, okay, so um, I now want to, I know I have about 10 minutes, and then I promise a lot of time for questions. Um, I want to talk about a very fascinating report of an LSD experience uh, as uh, Oliver Sacks wrote it up in his fascinating book, Hallucinations. And he talks about someone who has an LSD experience, goes through various details of it, and then gets to this, um, this part, I'm skipping part of it. but Then I left my body and hovered in the room above the whole scene then found myself traveling through a tunnel of beautiful light into space and was filled with a feeling of total love and acceptance. The light was the most beautiful, warm, and inviting light I ever felt. I heard a voice ask me if I wanted to go back to Earth and finish my life or to go, um, go into the beautiful love and light in the sky. In the love and light was every person that ever lived. Then my whole life flashed in my mind from birth to the present with every detail that ever happened, every feeling and thought, visual and emotional, was there in an instance. The voice told me that humans are love and light. That day will live with me forever. I feel I was shown a side of life that most people can't even imagine. I feel a special connection to every day that even the simple and mundane have such power and meaning. Yeah, that's the end of the quote. That's reported by Oliver Sacks, though he didn't have the experience himself. Um, what's striking is this experience has many of the hallmarks of a near-death experience. A life review, an out-of-body experience, traveling through a tunnel of light, or, uh, traveling toward a light, pleasant feelings, deceased people, and the subject experienced it as powerfully meaningful and transformative. Yet it was induced by a drug, LSD, and he knew this, both as it was happening and when he reflected on it in the retelling. This man's awareness of the physical explanation of his experience does not seem to have diminished its significance for him in the least. And we can understand the significance by noting that the story it tells is very similar to the story of NDEs. After all, we call LSD experiences TRIPS, An LSD experience is indeed a trip from the known to the unknown, and thus also shares this feature with NDEs and with life. The story told by an LSD experience, and in particular, the experience related to Oliver Sacks, is strikingly similar to the story of an NDE, as as I have interpreted it. It's the story of travel from the known to the unknown in a way that is elevating and even ecstatic. By the way. I'm just basing this on what I've read. <laughs> I haven't actually experienced. <laughs> um, some interpret an LSD experience as opening, quote, the doors of perception, in Aldous Huxley's metaphor, where this involves opening the doors to a different, higher reality. That's the way some people, perhaps a supernaturalist, would interpret it. But maybe such an experience does not connect us with a new reality, but with new ways of experiencing our world, our reality. The doors of perception are opened in the sense that we are more emotionally open, open to a larger or deeper range of emotional experiences. Perhaps the doors of perception are opened in the sense that a different part of our brain is newly empowered or enhanced. This is the way uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor explains her deeply spiritual experience during her stroke in her book, My Stroke of Insight. She was also a neuroscientist. Why, did, why do these always happen to neurosurgeons and neuroscientists? But, and she had a stroke. But it was deeply spiritual and, in fact, pleasant for her. Now, the time of her recuperation after, and rehabilitation was not pleasant but the stroke itself was, and she interpreted it as, taking offline parts of her brain, the more logical parts, maybe the left brain, and enabling the right brain. Okay. LSD experiences can be compelling and transformative. Indeed, LSD and other hallucinogens, like psilocybin and ketamine, are being studied in the treatment of PTSD, and the depression associated with a terminal illness diagnosis. The results are sometimes dramatic, even after just one treatment or one administration of the drug. The changes are strikingly reminiscent of those associated with NDEs. Less death anxiety, a more spiritual orientation, and a general equanimity and acceptance of one's fate. The stories told by LSD experiences and NDEs are remarkably similar. Okay. Um, So there I'm just trying to say that there can be indisputably physical causes of what are arguably physical experiences that are very similar to NDEs. So that's in service of the idea that we don't have to explain them by reference to supernaturalism. You might, you might still want to do that, but you don't have to. Okay, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, not unfamiliar with LSD, (laughs) called life, quote, a long strange trip. He once said, quote, we are on the road to somewhere, I just don't know where. In life's journey, we often don't know where we are going. I am reminded of... Okay, so this is probably the only time someone has quoted Jerry Garcia and Bob Hope in the same paragraph. <laughs> I am reminded of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in one of those Road 2 movies, like The Road to Morocco or perhaps The Road to Zanzibar. Bob Hope asks Bing Crosby where each of the forks in the road leads, and Crosby says, I have no idea. Hope replies, okay, let's get going then. We often don't know where we are going in life's journey. But it is even more mysterious where we are going in dying. NDEs don't tell us where we are going, but they offer comfort on the journey. It's guided by a benevolent parent figure. We are not traveling alone. NDEs are metaphorical narratives that capture this idea of travel into the unknown guided by a benevolent parental figure. They capture this idea in a context, death, that magnifies and intensifies the normal anxiety associated with uncertainty about the next step in our lives. So they are particularly profound. They tap into and address some of our deepest concerns. Okay, almost done. How much time Uh, am I over now? Oh, I've got just a few more minutes. We can understand the remarkable and profound significance of NDEs in a way parallel to our understanding of the sublime beauty of the Grand Canyon, or a sunset over the Pacific Ocean. The Grand Canyon and a sunset are physical, but this in no way diminishes their meaning to human beings. LSD experiences are physical, but they can be spiritually deep and transformative in remarkable ways. NDEs can be conceptualized as part of our physical world, but this would not render them without meaning or diminish their transformative power. Sometimes in the literature on NDEs, people describe naturalism as reductionistic and as kind of the bad guy in this debate, as draining beauty and awe and meaning out of the experiences. But I'm trying to argue that that's not really accurate. On the naturalist view, we don't have it that we are going to a good place, let alone heaven. We just can't have this confidence. And the naturalist might say that to seek it is wishful thinking. But guidance by a benevolent parental figure represents the thought that we are not headed for a status that is bad for us. Why would a loving parent lead us into something terrible? Even on the naturalistic interpretation, the stories NDEs tell are stories of hope and of love. Even if we can't be sure of where we are going, the stories tell us that we are not going alone. Again, this resonates with the wisdom of some of the new critiques of the way we treat people at the ends of their lives and put them in sterile institutions and hospitals where we're extending their lives, but not in a humane way. We want to die at home, surrounded by loved ones, mainly surrounded by family and loved ones. Unfortunately, NDEs do not necessarily tell the story of coming home, but they do tell the story of solidarity and loving guidance along the path forward, wherever that will lead us. So uh, Kate Bowler, who has recently written an interesting book. Um, let see, what is it called? Um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's uh, <laughs> a deeply religious person. She's a, a Mennonite, and she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and it's about coming to grips with this and making sense of it. She, by the way, is still living due to an experimental therapy that works for about 4% of the people with this kind of cancer, this colon cancer. And she wrote this really interesting book. Um, She summarizes findings of the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation as follows. Thousands of people were interviewed about their brushes with death in every kind of situation. Being in a car accident, giving birth attempting suicide, etc., And many descriptions describe the same thing, love. As I wrote at the beginning, we are frightened by death. And a supernaturalistic interpretation of NDEs helps to assuage our worries. NDEs can thus be part of terror management. NDEs so interpreted can be profoundly transformative. I have offered a slightly different way of interpreting the stories NDEs tell. This naturalistic interpretation also offers comfort in the face of an uncertain future and can thus help in the strategy of terror management without presupposing or ruling out or ruling out supernaturalism. So I'm not presupposing it, but I'm not ruling it out. Interpreted in the naturalistic way, NDEs are transformative because the natural response to love is love. Human beings do not want to die alone. We want to be surrounded by loved ones. The stories told by NDEs capture this important wisdom. They offer the comfort provided by solidarity in the face of daunting challenges and stark uncertainties. NDEs tell stories of love in the face of perhaps the most terrifying challenge, death. These stories resonate with us comfort us and transform us narratives reach our emotions their power does not depend on the literal truth of the events depicted there is nothing more beautiful more awe inspiring more and more motivational than love okay Okay, so we have plenty of time for questions. And I don't know all of your names, but yes, sir. You've really piqued my interest in that 10% negative. Oh, the negative ones. Yeah, I kind of suggested that they are interesting. So approximately 10% of the reports of NDEs are negative in the sense that they depict something very bad or unpleasant. Now, it's often thought that there are more of these than are reported, because there's kind of uh, a disincentive to report negative uh, NDEs. It's kind of uh, embarrassing or humiliating, and uh, if it comes out that you had an NDE, maybe people will think you're the kind of person who would have an NDE, therefore you've done something wrong or you're guilty or ashamed of something. So they are perhaps underreported, but... um, their significance is interesting. Um, I think uh, way less um, attention has been given to negative uh, NDEs in the literature because it's thought that they really don't perform the desired function of managing our terror of death. Matter of fact, they seem to do the opposite. But There is some work, there's there's some academic work, and then there's a woman named Nancy Evans Bush, who has, she's very active in the International Association of Near-Death Studies, which is a group in San Diego, and one of the groups that, in the Immortality Project, we supported. Um, She's written two books on negative NDEs. One's called Dancing Past the Dark, and the other's called The Buddha in Hell, And um, so what various people, including her, argue is they're instructive. They perform the function of enlightening the individual in the sense of turning him away from bad behaviors and reorienting him toward the good, but making it clear that if he doesn't change his behavior, he's going to go to hell, or he's going to have something bad. So they can be instructive. I would say there's a way in which we could understand them as telling the same story as the positive NDEs because they all involve, or they often involve a voyage. So in a positive NDE, you're going from the dark toward the light and you're guided by a benevolent figure and there's peace and and harmony. In a negative NDE, and often it's ascent in a positive. In a negative NDE, it's descent You're going toward the darkness from the light. You're going toward a void. And you are accompanied by an authority figure, maybe benevolent, uh, maybe not. But uh, you tend to not, I mean, the experiences tend not to be, according to the reports, of being tortured yourself. But you are witnessing other people being tortured unspeakably. So it's a guided voyage from the known to the unknown because you're going toward darkness or the void, um, and you're guided by a guide. Is the guide benevolent? Well, it, it kind of depends. If you interpret the guide as showing you and saying, look, look how badly you'll do if you continue your, continue your bad ways, um, then it really is a benevolent guide. So I would suggest. These are just my kind of ideas. I haven't really tried them on <laughs> scholars. But I would suggest that the story of ne- negative NDEs is really just the same as the story of positive NDEs. It's a guided, a benevolently guided voyage from the known to the unknown. Now, the details are kind of reversed. Instead of ascending and going toward the light, you're descending and going again. But they are helpful in the sense that they can transform your life in a positive way. Does that help? Okay, yes. Did you find that the ones that have those negative
1: experiences...
2: Um, do, yeah, we're, we're taping this, videotaping this, and so we need to Did have... Did you find
1: to... that they had um, changed more? Um, changed their behavior?
2: The negative ones? Yeah. I don't know, and I don't know that that's ever been studied. We do. We have studied, um, and Van Lommel, the cardiologist, um, the Dutch cardiologist, has done a long-term study of cardiac arrest patients who've had NDEs. He's a cardiologist, but he writes a lot about these near-death experiences, and he's really cataloged the transformational nature of uh, NDEs, and a lot of people are profoundly transformed. I don't know about the negative ones. I, I don't know if there's been a study of that. Um,
1: Do you know if they um, were more afraid of death after this experience?
2: Well, ideally you might say, at first they're very afraid and therefore they change such that they come to have more, less death anxiety because they orient themselves in a way that will not lead to that. But I, okay, I must say, I don't know a lot of empirical research on this. I don't think there has been, because I've, I'm not, I, I've done a good deal of reading, and I have never seen that kind of research. What I'd be interested in is, OK, are the people who have negative NDEs, do they tend to be religious, and specifically in a fire and brimstone kind of religion? Um, or are, are, do they tend to be depressed? Do they tend to feel guilty? a lot, um, can, and presumably we could kind of find out whether those people are more likely to have negative NDEs. Also, we could do some research, maybe you'll get a grant to do this, on how transformative negative NDEs really are. I mean, you, could, you could look at positive and negative NDEs as the carrot and the stick, and I myself have always thought sticks are more effective than carrots, but at least, um, you know, you could you could say that the carrot is also profoundly appealing. Okay, so more. Uh, how about over here? I feel like I'm always looking over there for some reason. Okay, Gary. Yeah, you wait for the microphone because they're taping this. Hey,
3: thanks for the the, the interesting talk, John. Thank you. I, I was. I'm still not quite clear about the. Um how the comfort comes in the naturalistic uh yeah. um but let me if I may pre- preface it by a question about the uh phenomena. How does it happen that uh, people with positive uh near-death experiences come back and they say, of course that was just an hallucination, but uh then they're transformed anyway, or does the sense of transformation depend upon some idea that they've been in touch with some further reality?
2: My sense, and again, I must say, you know, I'm a philosopher, I haven't done the empirical research, and I haven't spent my career studying these things. I've just been interested in it kind of coming out of the Immortality Project. My sense is the people who are transformed believe that they were in touch literally with a god or a heavenly realm. And in other words, they they take the significance to be coming from supernaturalism. And, um, right. Um, they often use the term ultra-real or real, or more real than real. Um, and what I think they mean is they, the contents, the reported contents, are literally true.
3: So, in your um, suggested alternative possible explanation, a naturalistic one, um, it it has to the explanation has to not depend upon them thinking that. One That's thinking right. that one is in touch with some further right, experience, right, right. Right. Um, and uh, I just so the first part of the question was just whether there was any empirical uh, empirical support for that. i was just wondering
2: about that uh, for the for the claim that if we switched to this other interpretation, we'd still get yeah right yeah made, no yeah. I just basically made it up <laughs> no I, I didn't make it up but I. Yeah. I was trying to figure out how a naturalist could pay respect to the sincere reports of NDEs and respect the transformational nature of them without having to buy into a supernatural realm and so forth. And so I am suggesting this as an alternative uh, and it's more kind of, a, in a way, a literary analysis. of the reports, and finding a different interpretation. Or maybe another way is you can look at the biblical stories, and you could be a fundamentalist and believe they literally are true. Or you can take the stories as illustrating certain points. And that's kind of what I want to do. But you're right. I mean, I don't know. If we we took someone who literally believed in the truth of or that their contents of their experiences map onto the external reality. Um, And we said, well, let's suppose that's not the case. You could still get something deeply meaningful and transformative out of it. If you think of it as not referring to God, but as a, or not necessarily referring to a divine power, but as pointing to the love we have toward our parents as they guide us, I don't know if that would still do it. Okay." But you wanted to. Okay, did you want to ask about the comfort? I don't want to take up too much time. But, but I want. I want to get at that. I, let me. Okay, let me pretend that you asked the question and answer it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. And then you can tell me if that was the question. Um, I mean, well, it, maybe I touched on it. The supernaturalist gets comfort because he or she believes he or she is going to heaven if if they've been good. Um, but now we don't have that. We just have the fact that we'll be, there'll be solidarity. We'll be with loving parental figures guiding us. But you could imagine your parents lovingly guiding you to a terrible place, not not because they deliberately want to, but because that's the only thing available. Like if your child has been diagnosed with terrible condition like cancer, you're there for the child, and you you know you take them to the hospital, but they're going to undergo some painful treatment. So the fact that there's a loving guide does not show that the destination is good. But like I said, that's all, I don't think we can have more on the naturalistic view. To know that, you know, if you are diagnosed with a terrible disease, that there'll be loved ones there with you and for you and sharing the experience, that's deeply important Uh, okay did that i I don't know if that answered your question i think it answered my question okay (laughs) but go ahead with your question
3: just very quickly i mean it just it seems as though on that explanation um you ought to a, a, a person um ought to get as much comfort from just having a lot of loving people around and other kinds of experiences of love. Uh, where it, doesn't, that's, doesn't, it seems as though the in near-death experience had a, had a more, was more forceful somehow than other ways of experience.
2: Well, what I was love. trying to suggest was it's more forceful partly because it resonates with the experiences we have as we develop. You know, as we um, learn how to detach ourselves, differentiate ourselves from our parents, then detach ourselves from the family and live independently, and then, you know, leave the womb of college and go out into the world. In these cases, it's always a voyage from the known to the unknown. It's scary in certain ways. And, but we, we manage partly because when things go well, we're guided by someone benevolent may not be a parent. So when we hear these stories, that gives it extra force. It's not just that we're surrounded by loved ones. I don't know, okay. All right, uh, yes,
4: sir. Um, you mentioned this briefly. Uh, just like you to expand on it if you would. Uh, my, my father uh, had one of these experiences. He didn't know what to call it when he told me about it. I'm not sure people had a name then. Uh, he had diphtheria as a teenager and that was a, a very serious uh, disease. And uh, his his memory is uh, uh, the light in the tunnel right, and the angels bringing him along through this tunnel. And then, being brought back reluctantly. And I wonder mm. if this is a common element that he said to me, if I hadn't, if they hadn't let me go mm. back, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have lived. Right. It was his sense that they allowed him uh-huh. to return.
2: Was his point that he wouldn't have chosen to come back if it was up to him? No.
4: It was so wonderful. He wanted to see uh, I, The movie, Far and Away, I don't know if you saw it, but Tom Cruise has an out-of-body experience at oh, the wow. beginning where he's up above the Irish cabin, right. and then is back down uh, in, in the body.
2: Right, right. Uh, okay, yes, it's common that people who have positive NDEs wake up uh, or regain wakeful consciousness and regret it, or they wish they could still be in the uh, NDE experience. It's like a, an, a great dream that you wake up from and you think, oh, I wish that could continue. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's, oh, that's a common... It's common. For, okay, thanks. Yeah, it's interesting. And that, again, points to the diminution of death anxiety because you know that eventually it'll be somewhere that you really will like, basically. Yes, okay, yes, sir. I've seen a lot of
3: patients where, who have gone on, on an anesthesia and many years ago, there were some patients that did report remembering things during the surgery, but that hasn't happened in the last many years and I guess it's better than anesthesia.
2: Okay. Okay, so I think you're, okay. Um, there is research going on and we in the Mortality Project supported this big grant, we were only a small part of it. It's being um, undertaken or directed by Sam Parnia, who's an MD and a PhD in neuroscience. He's a resuscitation doctor. He was at uh, SUNY uh, Stony Brook, State University of New York at Stony Now he's at NYU. And he, basically, he's, this is the way the study works. They use cardiac intensive care wards. They put computer screens up on the ceiling in a place where the patients can't see it from their bed. They come in unconscious. And then we hope they awake. <laughs> they awaken from their uh, severe uh, heart attack or cardiac event. And later they are, OK, so what happens is the, um, during the time of unconsciousness, the screen flashes a number. and the nurses don't know what number that will be and the doctors, uh, it's double blind and what uh, Dr. Parnia is trying to find out is whether any of them report oh by the way, when I was under anesthesia or when I I was not having wakeful consciousness I saw the number 17 that would really be um, pretty dramatic evidence of an individual being able to acquire information when his brain is offline. But so far, he doesn't have any positive instances like that. But the research is kind of is ongoing. He hasn't done it for a long time. So that's the best. Other than that, what, see, when it was announced that he got this grant, many people, maybe thousands of people wrote him uh, describing out-of-body experiences. And he, in Sam Parnia's book, erasing death, he relays, uh, relates some of these stories. And when you read, I mean, he doesn't see how they can be explained naturalistically. And what I would say is it's not obvious how they can be explained. But I'm kind of a default naturalist in the sense that I come to these with the pre, presupposition or the, what, the prejudice or the antecedent view that there must be some way to explain how these people got this information. That's my, as it were, starting assumption. But, in intellectual honesty, I I have to say that I don't know how to explain some of these. My second
3: question is, it, it could be supernatural that people remember these experiences, or it could be that the brain goes under ischemia and stimulate certain centers like memory and optics. Right. You see the light, you see. remember things from your memory bank.
2: Right. Though there are definitely alternative vaccines. It might be, I mean, there. So people can sometimes, there was a famous case of a man who had um, some kind of cardiac arrest, I think, in a hospital. He was in the hospital, then he had his cardiac arrest. He was unconscious. And he woke up, and the nurses were saying, "Well where where are his dentures?" Um, and he said, "Oh, I saw someone put him in that drawer you know when I was unconscious, uh, or otherwise not wakefully conscious. Um, and you know, how do you explain this? Well, there are possible explanations like before he had this event, he was in the hospital, he might have seen nurses put other patients dentures in the drawer or he might have not been fully unconscious maybe his his brain registered the information subconsciously he wasn't wakefully conscious but his brain was able to register information and when he became wakeful something triggered that i don't know exactly but there are you're right there are alternative explanations and okay there's one i should just mention kevin nelson who's a neuroscientist at the University of Kentucky. I think he's also an MD, and he's written about the neurophysiology of NDEs. And he has a neuroscientific explanation of the light at the end of the tunnel. And it has to do with increased blood flow during an NDE around the um, optic nerve. And it doesn't really matter for me what the details are, but. He does have an interesting explanation of how this might work. Okay, yes, in the back.
5: Um, Michael, Who taught it? You know, <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. But back in 1999 or 2000, and okay. um, I remember reading um, something about how you know when we're all driving on the freeway, and um, you know we see a car accident, and you know what? Immediately, you know if we were driving without our seatbelt or driving too fast, the observers, um, you know, automatically after they pass the car accident they, you know, drive with more caution and they're careful because they just saw a, tra- a tra- traumatic accident. Yes. And, but the point um, in that either the class discussion or the reading was we see these things and immediately right away we try to take caution and be careful, but then two hours pass by and it, it's behind us and we don't right. think about it anymore and the next day we're driving fast. So I'm wondering if this plays into near-death experiences in that you know, the, I can imagine, you know, first year, second year, we're awakened and grateful, and, and but I'm wondering how long that plays into the future, and has it been tracked, and so forth.
2: Good question, and I don't know what, I guess the idea would be that if you're a, a naturalist, you look for evolutionary explanations of various phenomena, and you could say it's a survival advantage for creatures to have a tendency to physiologically uh, kind of uh, to remain calm and carry on in a crisis. So we, maybe we have warring propensities. One is the fight or flight response in a crisis, and another is the stay calm and carry on response. And somehow we combine these to flourish, or at least we have a survival advantage. I mean, if we panicked that would not be conducive to survival. So I look at these, I mean, it's a long story, but I look at these NDEs as conducive to survival. And you're right, if we, we look at a, a car crash, we might be careful for a couple hours or a couple days or a couple weeks, but eventually it might wear off. Maybe a near-death experience plays the role of giving a more sustained example of what might happen Okay. Either positive or negative. Okay. Okay. On this side. Wait. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, we need a a microphone.
3: Well, thank you for a wonderful talk as always. Uh, My question is, um, are you surprised that these NDEs are described in ways that sort of borrow from lived experiences, you know, tunnels, blue eyes, and butterflies. (laughs) I'm I'm curious as to why people don't see the solution to a very complex mathematical problem.
2: Wait, a complex what?
3: Mathematical problem, or um, what it's like to slip into a black hole. Uh, I mean...
2: It might be that a mathematician would see... (laughs) Uh, No, no, you're right. Uh, Let me give you a good example, and this was... Uh, given to me by Bruce Grayson, who's the famous cataloger of NDEs. He's a psychiatrist. A lot of these people are neuroscientists, um, are uh, MDs or psychiatrists. And at the University of Virginia, Bruce Grayson, he's done a study uh, that shows that in Western countries, a staple, though not universally uh, instantiated, but a staple of NDEs is darkness and a light at the end of the tunnel. And, of course, in all Western societies, apparently, at least according to him and I believe it, we have that saying or that thought, uh, there's always uh, light at the end of the tunnel. There's hope. There's always light at the end of the tunnel. In Japan, they tend to see in their NDEs a rock garden, and they're tending a rock garden. And they have the trope or the idea that that it can be uh, calming and... Reduce one's anxiety as one gets older to buy a rock garden and tend it with family and friends. So it's definitely culturally relative which calming metaphor you your mind reaches for. And so like with other phenomena, just about every interesting mental phenomena is a combination of the physical and the neurophysical and the, as it were, Mental or cultural, your history, this religion, your religious background, your culture, that will help to determine. So in India, you know, they don't have Christian figures in their NDEs. They have uh, Hindu figures, let's say, different gods and goddesses. It's culturally relative, but at some level, they're all the same. There's always, um, there's often an out-of-body experience, there's often guidance by one of these religious figures. But yes, I totally agree. It's a matter, not just of biology, but of culture.
3: Okay. But one could have an NDE that is not describable, yes? That's not describable? Yes.
2: Uh, You could have an experience where in a context where your life is in jeopardy, but and that experience might be ineffable, or not put, uh, you can't put it in words. But I don't know if it would, according to the way people speak, it wouldn't be a near-death experience. It would just be an ineffable experience as you approach death. But a near-death experience has to have these, not all of them, but some sufficient number of these particular experiences. Okay. Thank you. At the, in the very back. So, um,
3: last week I was listening to radio and I thought it was kind of interesting that this program came out because it was
2: specifically related to what you're talking about today. And I came in in the middle of the radio program, so I, I don't have all the details, but they were talking about some research and I'm not sure what the research was pointed towards, but it was that these
0: scientists were putting themselves in this centrifuge, and I'm not even sure exactly how the centrifuge was set up, but apparently, as they were spinning around in the centrifuge, the, the
3: brain was losing blood supply, and one of the common uh, phenomena that they
2: all experienced was these near-death experience-like um, right. Uh, events. Right, right. And they described all the things that are typically
0: described by near-death experiences.
2: That's interesting. Well, I'd like to see that, um, so I'm going look for it. But definitely, out-of-body experiences, which are a component of near-death experiences, can be induced in that way. And yeah. Fighter pilots report out-of-body experiences. Also, interestingly, you can induce out-of-body experiences by stimulating a particular part of the brain. And this was discovered by a Swiss a uh, scientist named Olaf Blanc, and he was trying to treat people with uh, epilepsy. And the treatment involved a stimulation of a particular part of the brain. They reported out-of-body experiences. So there are lots of physical ways of inducing out-of-body experience. But let me just, by out-of-body experience, in this context, I just mean, it's as if you're floating above your body. And you're seeing it from a different perspective. That's not to say that they literally are separating, their consciousness is separating from their body. It seems to them that that's the case. I'm not saying that it is the case, that's an open question. But so the pilots experience that, maybe these scientists experience that, certain people with epilepsy experience that. You can even induce it, I think, I'm not sure, but certain kinds of meditation. Um, kind of uh, compassion meditation or loving kindness compassion meditation in Buddhism, you literally try to get out of your body into someone else's. And I I just want to mention so some of you this is uh, to me really fascinating. One of the projects we supported in the Immortality Project is part of an ongoing European research project that's centered in Barcelona and it's about virtual um, immersive, I'm sorry, immersive virtual reality, and that in this particular case, the virtual reality is seeking to get you to leave your body and literally feel as though you're in another body, and it's it's supposed to be um, therapeutic in various ways, and um, helps people regain the use of limbs. It can help with phantom limb pain. There are various therapeutic uses of it, but in any case, um, these are physical ways of inducing out-of-body experiences. So again, or the, again, the experience as if one's perspective is not identical to the perspective of one's body. They're definitely real. Let me, I, I want to be, so a, a distinction that's important to me and, um, is, uh, so when people say these are real, I want to agree, these are real, but in the sense that people really have them. Like, dreams are real. They're real. People really do dream. Now, it's a second question as to whether they're real in the sense that they're accurate, or that they depict an external reality that, that actually is the way it's depicted, or however you want to put it. It's veridical or truthful. Um, so OBEs are real, out-of-body experiences. People have them. People have them in different contexts. Um, but there is uh, what that means to me is they really think that they are uh, floating above their body. Are they really floating above their body? Well, that's a separate question. OK, Other, or how are we doing? OK, well, maybe one, all right, maybe one, one, more one more question. question OK, let's make this an easy one. Yes, okay. Do
5: you, thank you, do you have any more specific information regarding the life review component of NDEers?
2: Yes, Uh, well, I have some uh, information. Um, It's really fascinating. Sometimes it uh, is presented like a video highlight reel, you know, like a narrative order, and sometimes it's not, it's somehow Presented as all happening at once and not in a narrative sequence. Um, and sometimes it fulfills this role of the negative NDE that, I mean, when you see your life review, you might see something bad in your behavior and you might be caused to change it. So, one of, again, one of the projects that we supported in the Immortality Project. And I can kind of point you to some of the research that's come out of it. There's someone who's collating all of it. And I, so far, there are more than 70 articles and books that came out of the project. But there's an Israeli um, MD and also PhD. He's a psychiatrist as well. Uh, Shahar Arzi is his name. And he interviewed someone who said, I had this NDE, I had this OBE. and I'm mean, sorry. I had this life review. And it showed me that I had really been bad to a former girlfriend or a woman friend, and I really felt badly about it. It Illuminated, it enlightened me, and I changed. So um, it can have that role. Finally, what Shahar Arzi? So people have said, how can these, how can there be these life reviews? Where are they stored? I mean, some people say this is evidence of supernaturalism. But his research uncovered certain, at least, I don't know if he has a full explanation, but he thinks he has at least a partial explanation of how the life review is stored in the brain. So it's really interesting. Um, And I just want to mention this. As he was doing this research to try and figure out where the life review is stored in the brain, he serendipitously discovered something that helped so there's certain kind of back problem where people can have a surgery to try and fix it, but only certain people benefit from the surgery. His research gave a test for determining in advance which people are good candidates for the surgery. So maybe that was the one practical thing that came out of the immortality process. Okay, thank you.
1: Thank you so much for that, Professor Fisher. I'd like to um, now invite everyone to join us in a reception here, um, and perhaps uh, um, uh, if you haven't met uh, Professor Fisher, but if you have as well, uh, an, an opportunity to interact with him. So please stay. Thank you.